From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Hello and welcome to The Undercurrent Season 10, Episode 2. This one is called Staying Alive. I'm your host, Cole Cunningly. Today I'm presenting you stories about, you guessed it, staying alive. First, we'll hear about the MSU Food Bank from reporter Sophie Sagan. It's a vital resource on campus, available to any student. After that, we'll hear a story from MSU football history, one that takes place during the Civil Rights era. It's a compelling story that has recently been made into a documentary called Through the Banks of the Red Cedar. I talked to the director of that documentary, Maya Washington. All that is coming up next, but first, I have to tell you, you can find every single episode of The Undercurrent available online at our website. It's impact89fm.org slash the hyphen undercurrent. If you're listening to this in your car right now, maybe just catching it on the radio, and you like what you hear, you can find every single season. We're on season 10. That means we have nine that you have not heard. Isn't that incredible? Well, you can go check them out again at impact89fm.org slash the hyphen undercurrent. And coming up next are our two stories about staying alive. First, on today's show, we learn about the MSU Food Bank with reporter Sophie Sagan. Now, I've actually been to the food bank with some of my roommates because we all struggle with money. It's a simple and easy way to make sure that you have food on the table to make sure that you eat. So, you know, you can do well in your classes and, like, live. (laughs) I really think the food bank is a great and underrated resource provided here at MSU. And reporter Sophie Sagan has all the details. Here's her story. produce and bread items and that's where the clients can come pick whatever they like and then hopefully by the time they're done doing that their order is bagged up and they're ready to go. This used to be a kitchen when Olin used to be a hospital so this was the tray line and we've sort of morphed it to fit our needs. If you could see the reaction of people who are starting up sometimes these startup food banks will have literally a closet Mm -hmm. and they'll come in here oh my gosh. You know, they're so impressed. And it's really great. We're so thankful to Olin and the university to allow us to live here. That was Nicole Edmonds giving me a tour of the Michigan State Student Food Bank. If you couldn't tell from her description, it's quite large. And it needs to be. Last year alone, it served over 7,000 Michigan State students and their families. Food insecurity is a common problem for many college students, not just at Michigan State, but across the country. According to the Washington Post, researchers at Temple University and the Wisconsin Hope Lab concluded that 36% of students at 66 surveyed colleges do not get enough to eat. Getting yourself through college has always included challenge and commitment, but it means something different now to be a poor college kid. I asked Nicole about this, and she gave me two reasons for why college students today are particularly vulnerable to food insecurity. 
First, there are more, quote, non-traditional students going to school, such as students with families, students returning to university for a second career, and first-generation college students who lack support that, quote, traditional college students typically receive. Secondly, tuition costs keep rising for everyone, and financial aid just simply isn't keeping up. But if you think about it, I mean, I just think of my stepdad, who his credit, per credit hour was like $30 a credit hour. And so he worked a part-time job and paid his way through college. That's impossible now. Today, some students are being forced to cut corners. So what are the consequences of all this? What does it mean when you have to cut some food because there simply isn't enough money? There's tons of research and literature in the K-12 through population that shows if a child is hungry, they do poor, more poorly in school, they can't focus, they might be sick more, um, and it just that translates into the college population as well. Um, a difference would be a student who is experiencing food insecurity in college, they might skip class, maybe they don't feel like getting out of bed that day because they didn't eat really the day before, um, but they might also be working more hours in order to pay for their food and their other bills. Um, and so we're seeing that it affects student success. I'm going to quick jump to Kaylin Harrison and Ashley Reed. I met them while they were volunteering at the food bank. They're students themselves, so they understand how hard it is to make ends meet. There is so much to pay for. For example... Like rent, social activities, laundry detergent, because that's expensive. <laughs> I just thought about that. Beyond this, we counted utilities transportation, insurance, cell phone bill, membership dues for extracurricular activities, entertainment, and of course groceries. I asked Kaylin how much she pays for food every month. Mm. Ideally, ideally I would say about a hundred or so should go to groceries. Like if I'm eating like the stuff I'm supposed to like fruits and vegetables and like all that stuff instead of like buying like a pack of a pack of noodles which is like two dollars but it's not good for you right at all so I think ideally we'll go like for 100, but actually I think I spend like 50 to 75. Yeah. <laughs> do you work on campus or do you work? I, yeah, I do work on campus. It's just all my money goes to rent. Because I don't want to work too much and then not have time for classes. So, which is another problem with the university is tuition is too high and it needs to be lowered. But <laughs> I talked to Caitlin and Ashley for a long time and we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about what it means to be food insecure, the cost of living in East Lansing, work, tuition, getting financial aid. But this moment with them stuck out to me the most because it is just so relatable. Every step There's of the a way. Roadblock. There yes. is a roadblock with everything you try to do. And you try to do things the right way and try to do things how they tell you to do it and as efficiently as possible. But then it's just like things come up one after the other. And it's just like, can I get a break or something? Like some type of leeway. Somebody could help me out. But And this is exactly the purpose of the food bank to ease a little of that anxiety. The MSU Food Bank has been combating food insecurity for 25 years now. When they first started, they were the first in the nation to be college-based. I asked Nicole if there was anything surprising in the work that she does. It's a very uplifting, positive place where you see people from all over the world, all ages, all walks of life, um, in a room together, talking with each other, you know, smiling together and are just excited to be in a community um, that we've created here at the Student Food Bank. I guess that contradicts what immediately would pop into my mind, which is um, 
maybe shameful and right yeah mm-hmm. like um I think one of the big things at least for me as a college student like my independence is so important to sure me. um yeah, so that's something that's really important to us is creating an environment that sort of screams, you're not alone. There's so many of us that are in this together. And also, this is temporary. Like, it's not going to be like this forever, so use this while you can. This comment was what really excited me to check out the food distribution night for myself. And I'm here to tell you that she was spot on. The first thing you notice when you walk in is just how busy it is. Clients fill out what are called order forms, indicating what they need and how much they're allowed based on the size of their household. And volunteers fill out those orders from the shelves and the refrigerators in the back. While they wait, clients are allowed to pick out fresh produce that's donated from the student organic farm and bread products from an Okemos bakery. The whole operation is very collaborative. And that's made most apparent by the staff and the volunteers. Here's Megan, the student operations director. I love it. I feel like I'm really making a difference here because at first I never knew this existed. Giving free food to students is such an awesome thing and I feel like not enough people know about it at Michigan State. So I love working here and I think it's super rewarding. And Kaylin. I think the atmosphere is it's inviting and it's very inclusive and it's like just weird for like a food bank but it's nurturing because like they kind of like helped us whenever we're trying to get something and like if we looked at the shelf and we didn't know where something was someone else was like a volunteer was like oh it's right there and I'm like okay well thank you for your help. Standing in the middle of a distribution night I was really inspired. I was inspired by all of the students. Those handing out the food and those receiving it. Getting and paying for an education is really hard these days. People come to college because they're hungry for knowledge. They're trying to follow their passions and better themselves. There's this weird social idea that students are supposed to struggle their way through college, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, whatever you want to call it. But it's unfair that you might have to risk your health to get to graduation. But when you do get your degree, the possibilities are endless. I'm going to end with Alan, another key member of the Food Bank team. He's been around since almost the very beginning. He was also the president of the Food Bank for five years before they had directors like Nicole. And now he's the Assistant Vice President of Student Affairs, and through that position, he's able to help students get access to even more resources. He told me that it's disheartening in some ways that the food bank is still so needed, even after 25 years. But one of the cool things about his involvement over the years is that he's formed relationships with students who have come to the food bank for food. And now he works with some of them. It's great because... It shows that they've graduated and have been successful. Um, And just that East Lansing and Michigan State is a great place to be. For Impact Student News, I'm Sophie Sagan. That was reporter Sophie Sagan, and I'm your host, Cole Tunningly. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. That story was about the food bank, because this episode is all about staying alive. Sometimes you need a little help, and that's okay. And now we have a story about football and racism, about succeeding as a black man in the 1960s, about segregation and civil rights. It all went down here at MSU. I sat down on the phone with Maya Washington, the daughter of Jean Washington and a filmmaker. She made a documentary about her dad and the legendary football team that he was a part of. Here's my story about Through the Banks of the Red Cedar. Enjoy. This was a rebuilding year for Michigan State. His coach, Duffy Doherty, talks to an assistant, John McVeigh. It was something I discovered later on. I didn't grow up 
in a household where my dad, you know, said, hey, Maya, come on, it's time to watch football. And it never occurred to me to say, Dad, you know, I want to watch football with you. This one is sophomore Gene Washington, good for 24 yards. That's Maya Washington, daughter of MSU football star Gene Washington. Gene went on to play for the Vikings and Broncos. Washington makes the catch while in the arms of a tackler. As a child, Maya had little knowledge of her father's football career and instead viewed him as a champion of diversity because of his work connecting college students to job opportunities. It all changed at a memorial for Bubba Smith, who played a huge role in getting Gene onto MSU's football team. I didn't realize uh, that Bubba Smith had played such a significant role in my dad's opportunity to get to Michigan State, and I was so moved by that. I wanted to learn more about the Smith family, um, which led me to want to learn more about Duffy Doherty and this really unique history where Duffy was recruiting black players from the South at a time when no other northern schools were doing it at that incredible pace. And, of course, no southern schools would take African-American players at the time. Michigan State also had somewhat of a football oddity. Hawaii's Dick Kenny kicks the ball barefooted. Shoeless, he places the kicking tee, joins the huddle, and then... Maya is also a filmmaker, and she decided to take what she learned about her father, his teammates, and their coach, and turn it into a documentary called Through the Banks of the Red Cedar. At first, her father was hesitant. Well, I think it's one of those things where, you know, he had to sort of warm up to the idea. I think initially he was very um, skeptical and reserved, uh, has always supported and encouraged me as an artist, so I think he uh, believed in me from the beginning, but... Um, was always very humble in understanding that um, football is very much a team-oriented sport and is very proud to have been a part of a great team and had the opportunity to make a contribution to that team. It's not surprising that he had some reservations about being the star of this movie because, like, I looked up this football team online and I don't know anything about football, but from what I read, they were incredible. They've gone down in history as one of the best MSU football teams ever. As Michigan State approaches the start of the 1965 season, head coach Duffy Doherty is confident that green and white will be improved over a sixth-place finish of last year. We are rather cautiously, or should we say hopefully, optimistic. We realize we have a lot of... So the story is bigger than Gene. It's bigger than the excellent football team he played on, and it's bigger than football itself. This story is about America. It's about a specific moment in America's history, one that's really not that far off. This was about 50 years ago. Gene is still alive. That's why this documentary is important, and its lessons are still relevant, because they still need to be learned. To get the full picture, we need to go back to the beginning, to the 1960s. Michigan State had an inauspicious... Well, to paint the picture, um, my dad grew up in the segregated South in uh, the 50s and 60s. He uh, attended George Washington Carver High School in Baytown, uh, Texas, which was um, a few miles away from his hometown of LaPorte, Texas. So my dad actually lived walking distance to the high school in his community, but because of segregation, he couldn't go to the school in his own community because it was a white school. And if you were African-American, you couldn't attend the white school um, in his community. So he was bused to Baytown, to George Washington Carver, and that's where he met my mom. They were high school uh, sweethearts. 
and um, they went to an all-black school in their community. And so at that time in the 60s for my parents, things that we take for granted today, like being able to use a public restroom, being able to walk into the front door of a store or a restaurant or a hotel, or to even walk into an establishment um, that was a whites-only establishment um, was pretty much impossible. Um, road trips, interstate, you can't just stop at a gas station to use the restroom. Uh, it was very dangerous for African Americans to travel during that time uh, because if you were met with uh, people who had ill will towards you because of the color of your skin, uh, it was very unlikely that you'd uh, seek or be able to seek any justice um, if someone perpetrated violence against you or your family. Okay, hold it down, please. All of you hear me? You are in violation of Section 1159 Dallas City Code, demonstrating and parading without a permit, also violating a traffic judge injunction against parade. It was against this backdrop that Gene met Bubba Smith and his father. Even though Gene and Bubba played against each other, were from different schools, Bubba's father took it upon himself to recommend Gene directly to Coach Doherty, and it worked. If um, Coach Smith said my dad was worth taking a look at, um, Duffy Doherty took that to heart, and, and that's sort of how my dad made it to Michigan State. But in general, in the country, um, African Americans could not attend public colleges and universities um, and also could not play uh, sports and in, in a public school. Um, they were really restricted to historically black colleges and institutions to gain higher education, to participate in collegiate um, athletics, and those teams and leagues only played other black schools. So what Duffy Doherty was doing was pretty remarkable at a time where it definitely wasn't socially acceptable uh, to have integration on the scale that uh, John Hanna and Duffy Doherty really sort of championed. Um, but the opportunities were very, very limited for African-Americans in the South at the time uh, to, to go to a major institution and sort of be uh, on a path to a great education, but also be in a position to really get some attention from uh, the professional leagues. Gene and Bubba weren't the only ones recruited from the South by Duffy Doherty. In total, he recruited 23 young black men, and that decision ended up changing football history. By the time my um, dad got to Michigan State, for the most part, um, the media really embraced them. Um, the local sports media just loved Bubba Smith. Um, the phrase, kill Bubba Kill, became notorious um, and uh, synonymous with his name. And all of the uh, students and um, staff and everybody was really on board and very excited about this team. And I would argue because they were winning and um, they were really successful um, possibly one of the uh, best college uh, defenses of um, college football history, at least one of the best recruiting classes uh, in college football history in terms of what they accomplished. And multiple black players from this team went on to have professional careers. Bubba Smith was the number one pick, an African-American. Number two was Clinton Jones, um, also from Michigan State. Um, number five, George Webster. And then my dad was um, the number eight pick. And so... To have four African-Americans from the same school at the same time, something that had never happened uh, in history, something that hasn't happened since then, was pretty significant. But it's really interesting. In my research, I didn't find a lot 
um, that sort of focused on this being a racial milestone. The reason for that is the attitude of the era. It wasn't declared a major victory for civil rights because that simply wasn't something that the media would do at that time, which is a shame. But that doesn't change the fact that this team, their bravery and their success, had an effect on black folks around the nation who watched them flourish on TV. Uh, so I definitely feel like um, culturally today our media is a little more comfortable um, talking about race, pointing it out, putting it in the headlines in a way that um, in the 60s and 70s you weren't, you weren't seeing that so much. However, for the people most impacted by discrimination, um, they were still feeling um, race <laughs> on a day-to-day level. Their experience of race um, was quite palpable for them. Uh, it just wasn't something uh, talked about in the media the way that we are openly discussing it now. Just because the media chose to focus on their successes and not the realities of racism and segregation doesn't mean that these things weren't on the minds of the people actually playing football. For these players, there was immense pressure to succeed in school, to win every game, to be perfect, or else they'd be sent back to the South. I think that's part of the reason I maybe didn't um, know that my dad has such an important role in history, because I was always really passionate about the civil rights movement and did theater plays about the Freedom Riders and um, Martin Luther King's death, and um, those are the things I was always really drawn to. And I'd ask my parents, well, what were you doing in the 60s? And they'd say, we were in school. And I was always so disappointed. (laughs) I'm like, why weren't you out in some streets marching somewhere? And my dad's like, I had a track meet, or I had to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or I had to do this or that, you know, to survive. And I think um, there are so many people who had a hand in advancing our culture um, in big ways and small ways. And there are a lot of people who were the first in their community to do something that African-Americans had been previously uh, excluded from. And I think that's really the great discovery out of, out of this journey for me. The making of this documentary, the journey Maya took with her father, helped her learn more about him and about football in general. And now that the film is finished, the public has a chance to take this journey too. So far, the reaction to it has been... So incredibly positive, and we've had an opportunity to screen in the Midwest and the South, and really seeing how much people, whether they are um, Michigan State alums or Michigan State fans or just um, you know people from the communities, that we visited, uh, everyone really has embraced the story um, and been kind of um, flabbergasted that this was information they didn't know, you know, details about the desegregation of college football that they're just sort of hearing for the first time. Not knowing can be dangerous. It's cliche to say that history repeats itself, but here we are. It's 50 years later. And the president himself is embroiled in racially charged conflict with black professional athletes. Oppression is abundant, and the white supremacist system is getting bolder by the day. That's why historical documents, especially those like Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, the kind that tell untold stories, are so, so important. Well, I mean, I think our story is relevant in 2018 because in order to face the challenges of 2018 and and sort of our current political climate and the sort of public and national conversation about race and sport that uh, we're attempting in the media and people are attempting at the water cooler and attempting to have these conversations at the dinner table. Um, It's so critical that we know our history as Americans, that we know 
um, what first contact uh, with the indigenous people of North America was um, and what the impact of that was on future generations. Um, in addition to the enslavement of Africans, um, there's, there's so much that we didn't learn in, in school that a lot of people are, are, you know, now shocked that they're hearing about things for the first time um, and having these conversations not knowing, well, I didn't know this happened or I didn't know that happened. And so we have a collective responsibility to make sure that we know our history and that we can all have these really challenging conversations, but at least be on the same page. Hello, I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and you're tuned in to The Undercurrent. That was a story about the documentary Through the Banks of the Red Cedar. If that interested you, you can actually see the film on campus this week, next Wednesday in Wells Hall. Bye. That is it for this week's show. It's been all about staying alive. You heard about the MSU Food Bank, and you heard about Through the Banks of the Red Cedar, and I really, really hoped you enjoyed the show. I'd like to give a special thank you to Sophie Sagan, who worked hard on this episode. I'd also like to thank our general manager, Jeremy Whiting our station manager, Olive Mitchell, and our programming director, Simon Ferenzi. You guys are great. I'd also like to thank you just for listening. Thanks. It's really an honor to have you, you know, here, just listening to me. It's like we're having a conversation, almost. <laughs> I'd call it that. This is a conversation between me and you. How are you doing? Don't answer. Well, I've been your host, Cole Tunningly. Thanks for listening to me ramble. Have a great day. I'll be here same time, same place next week. See ya. <laughs>